Welcome to the Awake Podcast. I'm so excited that you've chosen to tune in today. And uh, this is just my second podcast ever. I'm still getting the hang of this, but I'm so enjoying being able to talk to you. And if this is your first time listening in, then I encourage you to go back and listen to the first podcast where I explain a little bit more about the title Awake, what that means to me, what I'm so passionate about. And I also hope that if you're tuning in, that by now you've seen my new website, noelleyates.com. And if you have, then you will notice a theme, really, a theme of justice. On my website, you'll see it says justice for all. And that's really what I want to talk about in our time today. Um, This is not a theme that I will finish in just one podcast, but really a theme that will continue to run through my work. Um, But today, I want to start at the beginning of justice. I want to talk about what does justice really mean? Because it's a word that's been intriguing me for really a long time. You see, I kind of live in a justice home. I have a double dose of justice, so to speak. My husband is a judge. He's a judge at the highest trial court level in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And he really knows all too well the legal meaning of justice. He interprets the law and uh, dispenses justice on a daily basis. That's his life. In fact, I recently uh, visited court one day and saw firsthand for myself how our justice system works. And as I quietly sat in the back of the courtroom, I watched my husband hand down a life sentence. And it was sobering to watch the courtroom really erupt with emotions from both sides. Some protesting in anger and disbelief and others crying just from the relief and closure. And this is how we often view justice. Nothing more and nothing less. Justice being served. Punishment for what we perceive as wrongdoing. And because of that, we don't always like, or maybe we're just not comfortable with the word justice being used to talk about meeting the needs of the poor and uh, maybe the disenfranchised of our world. In my book, Awake, I share an illustration about justice that sort of helped me get my arms around this. And I remember a few years back, uh, I was in my car driving along, listening to the radio, And I heard the words, these words come across on the radio. Osama bin Laden is dead and justice has been done. And this was 10 years after the horrible events of 9-11. And I couldn't help but think back for a moment and realize that the man who had brought so much death and destruction on our country was finally being brought to justice. He was finally given what he deserved. And one of the incredible stories of 9-11 that we all remember is the story of a man named Todd Beamer. And we all know him as that young father from New Jersey who on that flight, United Flight 93, stood up in the face of terror. He wasn't the only one. He wasn't alone in his fight, but it's his voice that we heard the recording of over and over again. It's his last recorded words that really made him a hero, even in death. The actual recording says this, are you ready? Okay, let's roll. 
And you know, as I thought of that, with all due respect, I just can't help but think that Todd Beamer must have been such a cool guy. I mean, what kind of the person in the face of that kind of terror and chaos would say something like, let's roll? His widow wrote that that was so Todd. She said it showed he felt he could still do something positive in the midst of a crisis. She said it was his phrase to kind of get their boys going out the door. She said when they heard, let's roll, they'd head for the door. And those words, let's roll, kind of became a rallying cry for us as Americans in the war on terror. Air Force planes had that phrase written, let's roll, inscribed on them. And for many of us who simply watched the events unfold, that phrase, let's roll, will forever remind us to stand up for what we believe, for what is good, and for all that we hold dear. You see, Todd was determined to fight for what he believed, no matter the consequences. And although he lost his life because he fought, so many others were saved. You see, I think that in order for justice to roll, we have to be willing to fight no matter the cost. And one of my favorite passages about justice is found in the book of Amos. And I want to read to you what it says. It says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. You know, if we're not living our lives awake, if we're not restoring hope and pursuing justice, then I think this passage tells us that God doesn't care much about all this other stuff we are doing to make ourselves look good. Our singing, our meetings, our conferences, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But without justice, they mean nothing. Bono once said, we're not after charity, we're after justice. And I love that because charity or the meaning of the word charity or acts of kindness, those are all optional things. We, we have a choice in that. But justice, justice on the other hand, I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, justice is a serious gospel prophetic mandate. He calls it a mandate. And he says, far too many Christians for too long have left the cause to others. You see, I believe that the biblical meaning of justice is far different from the more, I guess, commonly understood legal meaning of justice. Because for God, justice is not just about punishment of wrongdoing. It's not just about getting what you deserve. It's about restoring what has been broken, making things right, restoring hope. 
In fact, Tim Keller says that when we deny people justice, we are literally hiding God's beauty from the world. That phrase, I think, has impacted me the most when I think about justice. Hiding God's beauty from the world. That hits hits home for me um, because I have been to places where God's beauty is so hidden. I've seen it up close and personal. And if you continue to follow on this journey with me, you will hear those stories. You will meet those people from around the world. But today, as I'm talking with you, after just returning from India, there are a few stories that are heavy on my heart. There's a place that is heavy on my heart, a people group that is desperately in need of justice and restoration. You see, I thought that I had seen it all. In all my years of humanitarian work, I really thought I had seen it all. And there was a part of me that didn't want to go on this trip because I could sense that it was going to be hard. I could sense that it was going to be emotionally hard. And I just thought, you know, hasn't God taught me all that he needs to teach me? Haven't I learned about the needs of this world? I've been doing this for so long. But I found out very quickly that God still had a lot to teach me and a lot to show me. I was in northern India working with the Banchara people. Uh, There's about 100,000 Banchara people in 70 different communities. And what makes these people unique is that They have this tradition. It all started 500 years ago with a tradition called Narimada, where the eldest daughter in the family would be prepared as young as 12 years old to enter a life in the sex trade. Uh, It was out in the open. Everybody knows about it. The family supports it. The mother prepares the daughter from a young age for a life in this industry. And at 12 years old, it's a celebration. What makes it even harder to understand is the entire community uh, depends on this. This is their livelihood. This is how their economy is supported. And over the last 500 years, it's developed even more to where now it's not just the eldest daughter. Really, every daughter is at risk for this lifestyle. The families literally build a room outside of their home for the daughters to do their work. It happens right under the parents' noses. Some of the women also go away for weeks at a time to a place where there's, it's more heavily populated or on the side of a highway where there's going to be lots of traffic so that they can get more customers and they come back. And culturally, these daughters, these women, are expected to be the providers. They are expected to financially provide for their families. I had a hard time getting my arms around this. Uh, There's so many stories I could share with you, but I'm just going to share a few of the ones that really grabbed me. There was Lakshmi. She was a young mother who had been in this world since she was 14 years old. She was forced into it by her parents. She'd never known anything different. And as I sat there listening to her heartbreaking story, trying to, to be strong and hold back the tears, I was shocked 
as I saw her young daughter in the distance and heard Lakshmi say that she would put her daughter in this same lifestyle. That was her plan. She simply had no other choice. If you're going to feed your family and provide for your family, that was the only choice available to her. Nikita's story was really hard to piece together because she was either kidnapped or sold as a very young child into the Banchara community. She found herself living with a woman who claimed to be her grandmother and told her her parents had died. This woman regularly abused her and mistreated her all for the purpose of preparing her for the sex trade, preparing her for the lifestyle that would one day bring money into this family. In one village, I talked to two young women who ended up in the sex trade simply trying to pay off the dowry of their brother's marriage. And I was infuriated to hear how common this is, that it's the daughter's responsibility. So culturally, they have to pay these dowries in order for their sons to marry. It could be anywhere from five dollars to $20,000, which is a lot of money anywhere. But in these communities, it's a lifetime of wages. Corrupt money lenders get involved to lend the family's money, and the daughters literally end up working the rest of their lives in the sex trade in order to pay off a loan so their brother can get married. I couldn't wrap my head around it. And as I was trying to talk to these two girls in the distance, right behind us, were some men lined up, customers waiting for us to finish talking to these girls. I don't know. There was something different about this. Poverty has many weapons. I have, I have seen it. I've seen poverty make people sick. I've seen horrible living conditions. I've seen the lack of education and other opportunities. But what I could not get over as I talked to these women was how the greatest injustice of poverty, poverty's greatest weapon, is that it robs people of choices. These women simply have no other choice. I was stunned and overcome as I asked so many of these women what dreams they had for their life. I thought this was would be a simple question. I imagined, you know, any any girl or woman that I know here in the states, it's we all have dreams and plans for our life. I thought they would surely tell me quickly what they wanted to do with their life if they were not in the sex trade. But when I asked those questions, I looked at their faces and I looked into their eyes and there was nothing. Just a blank look as if they had never been asked that question before, that they had never even considered another option before. This was all they had ever known. The only opportunity ever offered to them. Could there possibly be anything else? But just when I thought I couldn't take any more, I started to see glimpses of hope, glimpses of justice, wrongs being made right, hope being restored. 
Because through the work of World Help there on the ground in India, many of these women and young girls are being offered a second chance. And I was amazed at what a difference a second chance can make. Girls like Naina, who now hope to become a doctor. Sonu, who wants to be a police officer. And Shalu, who wants to be an engineer. All of these girls that I talked to and so many more like them, they've been offered a safe place to live, an education, a life out of the sex trade. But most importantly, they've heard about a God who loves them, who values them, and has a beautiful life planned for them. You see, for me, that's justice. That is making things right. And that is restoring hope. And that's why pursuing justice is so important because where justice thrives, so does hope. I believe that it's time once again for justice to roll like a mighty river. That's what fuels me and inspires me to keep going. Justice for all. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you're interested to see photos, videos, and and more information on the stories I shared today, you can visit my website at noelleyates.com.